In this mini-series on the end times, we've looked extensively at the strengths and weaknesses of the three rapture timing views. These have survived in the church for centuries, the pre-trib, the mid-trib, and the post-trib views. And last time we looked uh, at by taking a huge step back and we asked the big question. And these are, your, these are uh, uh, just a few minutes of review, but to make sure we're all tracking tonight where we're going, uh, here's your first blanks tonight. Uh, repeat from last time, but this is the big question. Why would God leave something as important as the blessed hope of the church open to such dramatically different interpretations? Look at that question. Why would God leave something as important as the blessed hope of the church open to such dramatically different interpretations? How could something of so much significance been left open to so much debate and differing opinion within the Orthodox Church? We're not talking the fringe here. We're talking within Orthodoxy, Biblical Orthodoxy, these wide-ranging views on this. And we spent our last session showing why God left this incredibly important issue open to so much debate. Here's your next blanks. You may remember from last month. Because this is exactly how he wanted to leave it. Now that shouldn't surprise us. The scripture is exactly what God wants it to say, but it's exactly how he wants it. So we took the two main rapture views, <coughs> the pre-trib and the post-trib, and boiled them down to a single statement for each of them. Ready? Here's your blank. The bottom line of the pre-trib view is be ready to be surprised. Be ready to be surprised. And you've got your grid there tonight on your notes that hopefully you printed out. Um, and here's the present. And if the pre-trib view is right, then at some point before the peace treaty, so the peace treaty won't be an identifier even. Before the peace treaty, boom, it happens. It's the belief of the pre-tribbers that that's what Jesus was trying to say when he said, there they are working at the mill and boom, she's gone and boom, she stays. Um, this incredible out of the blue, and then starts the seven years of tribulation. That's the pre-trib view. So you can see the bottom line to the pre-trib view is be ready, be ready to be surprised. So always be ready. He can come at any moment. And here's the bottom line to the post-trib view. Here's your blank. Be ready to be persecuted. You see, if the post-trib view is right, then the church, rather than being taken out before the seven years of tribulation, and rather than being taken out especially of the last half, the, what Jesus called the great tribulation, the church bears all of this burden, including in here living the 666 economic and treachery campaign by the now exposed Antichrist, who at the abomination of desolation abominates the temple and sets himself up as God and makes everybody worship him and take the mark. And the slaughter will be massive across the earth of those who will not take the mark. And if the post-tribbers are right, all of that will be endured by the church. And then finally, in a very uh, complex uh, time of Jesus coming for his church, resurrecting the dead, the dead uh, we who are alive and remain then are caught up with him. We meet him in the air. 
Uh, somehow we have a very quick, <laughs> very quick, if the most tribbers are right, uh, um, time of the, the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, and judgment seat of Christ and all of these things going on, and then uh, return to the earth um, to uh, win the battle of Armageddon, the angels and the church with Christ. And so again, the bottom line of the post-trib view, as you can see, having had to live or die in the tribulation, is be ready to be persecuted. And this led us to a key concept. Ready? Here's your blanks. The scriptural ambiguity demands that we be ready for persecution, right? That's the post-trib view. The scriptural ambiguity demands that we be ready for persecution and that we, if the pre-tribbers are right, that we be ready for him, for Jesus, so given the fact that God wants us to be ready to be surprised, but also ready to be persecuted, this simply underscores the potential that the ambiguity between the major views is exactly what God intended. Now this uh, thought is very out of sync with almost every book that's ever been written on the return of Christ. You can go to bookstores where they exist now, and you can find entire sections on the end times and the second coming of Christ. And what happens there is essentially every author asserts that their view is right, and that those who have differing views have simply missed the boat. So they spend their entire book explaining why their view is right and the other views are wrong. And they act as if the question is resolved when you buy, read, and finish their book. But this is completely ignores the fact that there's no other area of theological discourse that has as, such a lack of resolution within orthodoxy. And this brings up an interesting possibility that few authors and teachers acknowledge. Here's your blanks. It's a long one, so I'll read it twice. Look at this. Few authors and teachers acknowledge this, a perfectly reasonable conclusion that emerges from centuries of unresolved debate about the timing of the rapture is that the debate is unresolvable, that the debate is unresolvable until after Christ returns. Now look what you've written in. An interesting possibility that few authors and teachers acknowledge, a perfectly reasonable conclusion that emerges from centuries of unresolved debate about the timing of the rapture is that the debate is unresolvable until after Christ returns, that we won't really know, really know, really know for sure within orthodoxy. There's no evidence right now that the other views are falling away and one is emerging as the only view that's believed within the orthodox church. It may not be until he's come back that we, we see it. And this is why I titled tonight's session as I did. Look at the title at the top of the page. Super confident with your rapture view? <laughs> Newsflash. Many believers disagree with you, and they take the scripture just as seriously as you do, and they're filled with the same Holy Spirit that you are, and they have the same Savior and high view of scripture that you do. So in our last session, we began to work on the application related to why the Lord would want the pre-trib view to be taught. Application number one, that's what we did last time. Here's your blanks. The pre-trib view emphasizes that decision time is now. Why would God want this taught? Because the pre-trib view emphasizes that decision time is now. 
and we spent our application time last month on that very issue, showing, showing that Jesus wants us to decide to follow him in this moment now, today, 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 if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. And tonight we're going to look at some of the reasons why the Lord would want the post-trib view to be taught. So this is basically, last time was the thesis, and this is the antithesis, and really, hopefully, also the synthesis in that classic dialectic view. Ready? Application number two, the post-trib view emphasizes that now is the time to be strong and to endure. See, the pre-trib view makes the emphasis that now's the time to be, to be ready. Now's the time to make your decision for Christ to follow, and if you already made your decision for Christ, to make your decisions about all the other things that have to do with following Christ. But the post-trib view emphasizes that now is the time to be strong and to endure. So let's begin this application by looking at a snapshot of what life will be like for believers if the church remains on the earth during the tribulation, the classic post-trib view. What if the church goes all the way through the seven years. And let's look what's just happened right after the abomination of desolation. Here we are in the midpoint. This is what's happening halfway in as the great tribulation is going to begin. Look at this in the dragon. It's in your notes. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming down out of the sea, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? Notice this will be going on in front of the whole world now that we understand the ability to technologically see some event basically all over the world. And notice, and uh, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Then I saw another beast. So here comes the false prophet. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it is given with him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would be even speak and cause as many as who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Notice the heat ramps up rapidly after the abomination of desolation. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free man and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand and on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Think about that. Pretty grim words if the church is going through it as the post-trib proponents believe. So last week we looked at why God would want the pre-trib view to be taught because it's, this view reminds us to be ready for Christ to return at any moment. And tonight we see, here's your next blanks, why God would want the post-trib view to be taught. Ready? Here's your blanks. He wants us to be prepared to remain true to the faith, even if it means going through horrible tribulation. 
Ready? He wants us to be prepared to remain true to the faith, even if it means going through horrible tribulation. And in addition, I want us to notice something else. This concept isn't just about eschatology, what you just read, about being true to the faith even through horrible tribulation. You see, it's actually a universal principle for all of Christian life, regardless of whether a believer ends up being part of the final generation or not. In other words, this passage in Revelation that warns believers about the great tribulation isn't just for Christians who will live when the end comes. The implication of the coming tribulation is that we actually are meant to prepare every generation, every generation that will ever follow Christ. Because remember, John said, Brother, brethren, brothers and sisters, it is the last hour. It is the final hour. Every generation is supposed to believe that we are in the generation that will see Christ's return. So every generation is supposed to be prepared for tribulation, whether we end up being the one that sees Christ's return or not. In fact, the importance of believers being prepared to endure hardship and persecution is, sought, is taught so many times in the scripture that it's difficult to narrow it down even to just a few passages. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you one example of this precept from Scripture, this general precept from Scripture, and then one example of it actually being lived out in a believer's life. So we ready? Here's a universal precept. It comes directly from Luke 9.24. Here's the text, but I want you to write it in. Ready? For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Here it is again. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And now let's look at an example of this precept being lived out in the life of the Apostle Paul. We pick up his story during his last, the third of his missionary journeys. He has, of course, been all over the Mediterranean world repeatedly. And now the last time, and look, we pick up in Acts chapter 21, near the end, verse 8. On the next day, we left, we, this is Luke writing, of course, so this is Luke and Paul and their companions. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses, and we were staying there for some days, and a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands, so here's Agabus the prophet binding with Paul's belt, but binding his own hands and feet, and he said, this is what the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jews the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered. Listen to this amazing answer. Talk about Paul being prepared for tribulation and hardship. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So here we see an example of Luke 9.24 being lived out, right? That if you'll give your life for Christ's sake, you will gain it. Ready? 
Here it is. Uh, For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Look at that. Look what you just wrote in from Luke. Excuse me. (laughs) From Acts. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. The the text, sorry about the error there. The text is not Luke 9.24. It's uh, from Acts chapter 21. Look at this. For Paul, the words of Jesus about losing his life for the Lord's sake weren't just theological. They were actually real. They were part of his life. So Paul had this amazing testimony of courage and endurance in the face of persecution. But now I'd like us to see something that you may not have noticed before. As you read through the biblical passages about the last days, it's remarkable how many times they emphasize the need to be prepared to endure hardship and persecution and tribulation. The teaching about the last days almost goes hand in hand with teaching about enduring in trials. So I'd like us to look at one more time at Matthew 24, which hopefully you're starting to get large parts of essentially, even if you don't know it word for word, essentially memorized, at least in the content. And let's look specifically at it from this perspective, the Olivet Discourse. Look at Matthew 24, look at verse 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation. So here begins the seven years, and and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. But, listen, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. So if you let the full force of this passage soak in, it's pretty scary, isn't it? Listen again to what Jesus said will happen in the tribulation. The love of most will grow cold, and the one who endures to the end shall be saved. And if the post-trib view is right, this leads us to a key question. Here's your blanks, the key question. Ready? How can we be prepared to endure the persecution that could be coming our way. Having heard about Paul's life and many others that you know of, of course, how can we be prepared to endure the persecution that could be coming our way? Well, it turns out that the Luke rendering of the Olivet Discourse, because it's both in Matthew 24 and also in Luke 17, it points us toward an answer. It doesn't give us the answer, but it points us toward a question, that, uh, an answer that we will then look at uh, from all the way, believe it or not, all the way back in Genesis. Look at this from verse 28 in Luke 17. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So what we see is Sodom and its destruction is a picture of the end of the very last days. It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house should not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. And now, at verse 33, 
it repeats what Jesus taught back in Luke 9.24. Look at this. It's put right together. Look at this. Here's the text. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So what's the message? Ready? Write it in. Here's your blanks. We must be ready to die for the faith. We must be ready to die for the faith. So now let's go look at Luke's words again in two verses in chapter 17. First, look at verse 31. I've put it, sorry about the repetitiveness here of the text, but I want you to see this because it's so striking once you see it. Notice on that day, this of course speaking of the abomination of desolation at the middle of the tribulation when all of a sudden everything's going to fall apart. Notice the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. And now look at verse 33. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. But now look at the three-word verse, just three words, the three-word verse that Luke placed between these two verses. Between verse 31 and verse uh, 33 is, of course, verse 32, but it seems to be completely out of place. The statement in the text is strange, without explanation, and without any apparent linkage to verses 31 or verse 33. Look at verse 32. Three words. Remember Lot's wife. Now, how random is that? You got this whole flow, the Olivet Discourse. It's, it's beautiful, beautiful literature, really. It's scary, but it's beautiful literature, beautifully written. And all of a sudden, boom, these three words seemingly crammed in. Remember Lot's wife. This is so bizarre. I want you to hear it in the context of the passage now read through. Look at the, just listen on the day, that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Now, when you see something like this in Scripture, it should alert you to the fact that something important is happening. This is a common biblical technique. So think about what we tend to do with verses or statements or parentheses like this. Often when we we find random or out of place or seemingly disconnected concepts in the flow of Scripture, we simply ignore them. Like if we're, it's a beautiful passage and we're underlining, we may literally just stop underlining those three words or whatever length it is there and then pick back up with the underlining, underlining right? We, we just simply ignore them. We treat them almost as if they really shouldn't be there because we don't see how they fit into the text. But this is absolutely opposite of what we should do. In fact, when this kind of things happen, we should pay special attention. So look at the context of this seemingly out-of-place verse. Jesus has been talking about tribulation and people falling away from the faith and the abomination of desolation and people's love growing cold and calling believers to endure to the end. And in that context, he gives us the answer to how how to endure in our faith, even in the midst of tribulation. 
So what's the answer? Ready? Look at, these are your next blanks. What's the answer to being ready for tribulation and even martyrdom? Ready? Remember, here's your blanks. Remember Lot's wife. Say what? <laughs> That's right. The way to endure and to be prepared to face persecution is to remember Lot's wife. So when the Bible uses this technique of throwing in a seemingly random reference, obviously it makes sense to read the passage that it refers to. So let's look at the story of Lot's wife. We pick up after Lot has separated from his uncle Abraham and he's moved his family into the city of Sodom. And you may know that Sodom is renowned in its violence and its sexual sin. So as Lot is sitting near the city gate, two angels who appear as men come to warn him that the city is going to be destroyed because of its wickedness. Let's pick up in verse 12. You're, you have the text there in your notes for simplicity. Notice then, uh, I'm using New American Standard in case you want to use your own Bible. Then the men said to Lot, Who else, uh, whom else is there here? So the angels speaking to Lot at the city gate. Who else is here? <clears throat> Uh, uh, you have a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever has entered in the city, bring them out of the place for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. By the way, that's what happens when a mind and a heart is hardened. They, become, they became spiritually blind and spiritually deaf. So this sounded crazy to them. So they think he's telling a joke. Verse 15, And when, when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Now we see God's amazing grace. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him and they brought him out and put him outside the city. And it came about when they had brought them out outside that one said, escape for your life. So here's the announcement from the angel. Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains lest you be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, now behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by, saying my by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to. So here he's pleading with the with the angels saying, hey, can we can, can you save that town and can we go there? And it, it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not small that my life may be saved? And he, they said to him, behold, I grant you this request also not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. Now, this is classic Hebrew, where what they do is they name a town 
after something about it. Just like Esau is red in Hebrew, and he had red hair, so they called him red. Notice here, Zoar means small. So that's the, now the, the, apparently the new name of this, of this village. Verse 24, look at this. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife from behind him looked back, looked back and became a pillar of salt. Look at this situation. Lot's wife is on the verge of deliverance from destruction. She's in the very midst of experiencing the grace of God as she has angels taking her by the hand and pulling her out of the doomed city. God's mercy has brought her to the safety of Zoar, and this place is literally her very salvation. But look, what she's doing in the very midst of her salvation. She's looking back. Rather than being overwhelmed by the amazing grace of God, rather than standing in awe of the undeserved mercy she's receiving, instead, her love for Sodom and the sin that Sodom represents. It's so great, that love, that she finds herself looking back with longing eyes on the very things that God has just delivered her from. Can you imagine experiencing God's mercy that delivered her from the filth and evil and the wickedness of the world, and yet there she is looking back on it and wishing she hadn't left? But wait, let me ask the question another way. Can you imagine experiencing God's amazing grace that delivered us from the filth and evil and wickedness of the world, and there we are looking back on it, wishing we hadn't left the things of the world? Friends, Lot's wife is a picture of many people in the American church. And for a day such as ours, Jesus has a warning. Remember Lot's wife. And what does he mean when he says, remember Lot's wife? Once you've experienced God's saving grace that delivers you from sin, never look back. Don't crucify Christ again from the Hebrews. Never look back. So here's the key concept. Here's your blanks. Ready? Here's the key concept. Jesus' command to remember Lot's wife means if you want to be truly prepared for the persecution and tribulation that are coming, then never look back. Look at it again. Jesus' command to remember Lot's wife means if you want to be truly prepared for the persecution and tribulation that are coming, then never look back. Remember in that all of that discourse in Luke, there he is talking about the tribulation has come. Don't go back to get your stuff. Flee to the mountains. This incredible thing going on and saying that if you are willing to lose your life for my sake, then you will save your life. And in the middle of that, he says, never look back. That's the three words that are meant when he says the three words, remember Lot's wife. So if you want to be ready for what's coming, listen, church. 
no matter how bad it gets, if you want to be prepared to face tribulation and hardship, if you want to endure to the very end, then you put your hand to the plow and you face your eyes forward and you never look back. The Apostle Paul testifies to this in a parallel passage, perfectly parallel from 2 Timothy chapter 4. You probably know it. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. Keep the faith. See, Scripture is full of passages that talk about finishing well and not wavering, about not shrinking from our calling, about running with endurance the race that is set before us. But perhaps you've never noticed how many times endurance is linked directly to the last days. So, look at our key question again. Remember, how can we be prepared to endure the persecution that could be coming our way? What's the answer to enduring to the end? What's the answer to being ready for persecution? How can we be prepared even for the possibility of martyrdom? Never look back. And what does this mean? Leave the world behind. Reject its draw and its wooing, its enticements and its temptations. Press on to the high calling of God. Notice all of the parallel passages to this. Press on to the high uh, calling of God and run with endurance the race that is set before you. Keep your eye on the ball. Finish well. Never give up. Never look back. So as we finish tonight, let's look at one of the great testimonies of this anywhere in the scripture to be found. It's in the faith chapter. It's in your text there. Look at this from Hebrews 11, just a portion of it. You know all of this has been by faith Noah, and by faith uh, uh, Abel, and by faith Abraham, and all these great, by faith Moses, all these incredible, incredible heroes of the faith. And look at this. Now we pick up in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, listen to this, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. Listen to this lineup. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Oh, listen, church, people of whom the world was not worthy. And after this litany of great heroes of the faith, we receive one of the greatest challenges in all of the scripture. It hits verse 1 of chapter 12. You may be familiar with this. And with that background in incredible chapter 11, look at this, therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore, because of this, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us. Guess what? Never look back. 
Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured, notice the word, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In this passage, we find out the key to pressing on, the key to running with endurance, the key to finishing the race, the key to never looking back. Ready? It's a key concept. Write it in. Here's your last blanks. The only way to never look back is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Look at that. The only way to never look back is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Remember, an interest can be replaced by other interests. But listen, a love can only be replaced by a greater love. So, all of us in our rebellion before we came to Christ were in love with the world. We loved our sin, as John chapter 3 says. We loved our sin. The only thing that can replace a love is a greater love. So how can we not look back to that, not yearn for that which we have left and been delivered from? The answer is we must fix our eyes on Jesus. So tonight... As we ponder the story of Lot's wife, let me ask you, have you fixed your eyes on Jesus? Or have you been thinking about looking back? Listen to the words of the angel in Genesis. Escape for your life right now. If you're being tempted by something from the world, being tempted to go back, being tempted to go back to Egypt, back to sin, back to Sodom. If you're being tempted, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Thus says the angel of the Lord from Genesis. So here's the answer to the question about how to prepare for persecution. If you keep looking forward, if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, if you keep picking up your cross and following him, if you never look back, then the Lord will ensure that you're ready for the coming days. You see, to be ready for what's coming, you don't have to join martyrs for Jesus. <laughs> you don't have to sign up for missionary duty in a dangerous country. And you don't have to endure self-inflicted torture. In fact, as you, I'm sure, are aware, there are psychiatric diagnoses for people who like pain. That's not what you have to do. The answer is, the answer, how do I not look back, is as long as you keep looking to Jesus and staying the course, His grace will ensure that you won't be consumed by the fire. If you're too weak to make it out of the valley, guess what? It's okay. By God's grace, so was Lot too weak to make it out of the valley, but God sent his mighty angels to save. But notice, as long as Lot kept looking forward, even if he was too weak to escape the fire on his own, God sent angels to rescue him. Lot was desperate for a place of safety in the midst of his sure destruction. Lot 
was desperate for Zoar. And now think back to the story. God didn't stop the fire from coming. No, that day is coming. God has fixed a day when Jesus will come in awesome wrath at his return. But what did God do? What he did was he protected Lot within the midst of the fire. So think about this. Here's great news. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to be mighty. You don't have to be a hero. You don't have to have all the answers. Here's the promise. As long as you don't look back, your ultimate deliverance is assured. Your ultimate protection is assured. God will protect you in Zoar. If you're afraid that you're going to be consumed, just keep looking forward. If you're afraid that you're going to lose the faith, just keep looking forward. If you're afraid that you won't be able to handle all of the life's trials, just keep looking forward. And if you're afraid that you won't be able to take the heat with persecution, if it comes, and if the tribulation comes, if you're afraid of that, just keep looking forward, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Think about this with me as we finish. There are a lot of bad things about trials and tribulation and persecution. But you ready for this? Talk about a strange way to end a message about persecution, right? Look at this. There are two great things about tribulation. Here they are. Number one, here's your blanks. We have a faithful cloud of witnesses cheering us on who know exactly what it's like to make it through the fire. Praise God. Listen to that. We have a faithful cloud of witnesses cheering us on, who know exactly what it's like to make it through the fire. And number two, as we keep looking ahead, here's your blanks, as we keep looking ahead, and as we don't look back, we're preparing to join the great cloud of witnesses someday. You see, when we're faithful in this life, God prepares us to be used by him to cheer on those who will come after us. Remember, you're not being faithful for your sake. You're being faithful for your children and theirs and theirs. You're not being faithful for you. You're being faithful for a dying world, for your colleagues, for your friends, for your neighbors. You're being faithful for lost people who have no other hope. Is faithfulness easy? No. Is it easy to look back? Yes. Is it hard to finish well? It sure is. Is it painful to stay the course? Yes. Is endurance costly? Of course it is. But is it worth it? Absolutely. Let's pray. Well, Lord, Forgive me for all the times that I have forgotten and failed to fix my eyes on you. That is my great problem, Lord. I identify many things in my life as problems, but my great problem is when I fail to fix my eyes on you. So, Lord, tonight, 
as we live in a day when it feels more and more like this could be the final generation, this could be the generation of your return, this could be the age of taking the mark, and no one being able to buy or sell unless they will worship a man, the Antichrist. Lord, I pray that in the midst of all of that, in the midst of potential persecution, that we will never look back and that we will fix our eyes on you. We love you, Lord. May your Holy Spirit cleanse us so through and through that like Paul, we have the power to say, why are you weeping and breaking my heart like this? For I am not only willing to be bound, but I am even willing to die for the name. Do this in us, O God. We love you. Amen.